If you would, as you're being seated, please open to Genesis chapter 6. We'll continue our study in Genesis, but as you're turning to Genesis 6, I did want to share with you that tomorrow will make two weeks since I had uh, surgery to repair a hernia. Um, and I, I'm sharing that with you because I've had so many of you come up and just, uh, just care and love and, and let me know that you've been praying for me. So I wanted to thank you for that. I, I don't usually like to share much uh, about myself or tell, talk about myself much. Um, when we're here together on a Sunday morning, we're here to talk about somebody much, much greater, much stronger, much more worthy of discussion. But um, because so many of you have asked and, and were concerned, uh, the, the surgery went well, and praise God, I'm recovering. Um, but when I had a similar procedure 20 years ago, I, I certainly recovered more quickly <laughs> than I am right now. So uh, if, if you see a stool here behind me and, and I sit on it occasionally, that I'm still recovering, so um, I'm sure that you'll forgive the egregious error of sitting. <laughs> it's not. It's not at all. But uh, thank you for your prayers and your care. Genesis 6 Uh, Let's read verses 1 through 8 together and study these. As our Lord speaks to us, as He reveals to us who we are, who He is, why we need a Savior. And not in these verses do we find out who that Savior is, but we know who He is. And we will proclaim Him and love Him and adore Him forever. Let's begin Genesis 6 verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days, shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old. The men of renown, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Father, praise you and thank you. We worship you because you are this creator God who also gives grace despite our sin. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We lift up the name of our Savior And we ask that you would make us more like him for studying your word as your spirit works in us. Thank you for our Savior in his name. Amen. Well, as we've been studying Genesis together, we've made a a strong point of ensuring that we know just how good things were when God created everything. We've wanted to make sure that that has been made known to us, that we recognize that, that we praise God for that, and, and then we've seen how quickly things have just fallen, degenerated. Uh, because of sin in mankind. And and those things have been devastating. Those consequences of sin have been terrible. Uh, Those consequences that we can feel within us, that we can see around us, that we see happening in other people. But this passage really helps us see the bigger problem with sin. See, the real terror, the real tragedy of sin 
is not the effects of sin. Those are terrible. The sickness, the division, the, the more sin, the death that sin brings, those are very bad. Those are terrible, but the real misery, the real sorrow of sin is what it does to God. Who is offended by our sin? Who is assaulted by our God? This good, powerful God of creation is assaulted by, offended by, grieved by our sin. It's that real effect, that real consequence of sin, of our sin problem that we miss a lot of times because we're kind of focused on the effects that we feel and see within ourselves and that we see all around us. It's those unknown consequences often that we don't think about, the unseen consequences. Like when smoking tobacco took off early in Europe, in the early 17th century, there were health consequences that were real that people didn't realize. By the 18th century, it was not just big business, though. It was industry. It was a big industry. And as early as 1602, there was an anonymous author who wrote about, you know, I've noticed some health effects with people who are smoking tobacco. They're similar to the chimney sweeps. Same kind of health effects and, and issues and problems. And it was not until Germany in 1795 that a doctor observed various cancers of the lip that were being noticed by those who were smoking tobacco. But three years later, an American doctor started writing about many health dangers. We're, we're, just, we're just noticing these things. It's been around a couple of hundred years, actually, smoking tobacco has been around for thousands of years. But as it took off, they began to notice the health effects. Lung cancer, the, the link with lung cancer came about in the 1920s, but newspapers refused to print it because of the loss of revenue. Uh, that would have associated that, uh, been associated with that. So, so they didn't print them. But the health effects on the smokers were, were really evident fairly early on, even as people tried to reject it. But it really wasn't until the 1980s that studies began to show the consequence that no one had seen or thought about to this point at all, the effects of tobacco smoke on the people around you. The 1980s. And today it's broadly accepted that being around smoke affects your health in negative ways because of a preponderance of evidence. But I don't know about you, I've, but I've never heard anybody who started smoking that said, you know, I'm going to start smoking because I really want to affect negatively the health of the people around me, right? That, that wasn't the first thought of anyone who picked up their first cigarette or the second or the third or, or anything else. But whether it was intended or not, that was the truth of what happened. And it wasn't an accidental thing. It was a purposeful, intentional act to, to smoke uh, tobacco. The decision was intentional, but the effects, the consequences were not really known or understood or intended. Now, the analogy that we have with sin is similar, but not quite the same. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they knew that the consequence would be death, death for themselves, but as they experienced God's judgment, they saw further consequences on the world all around them. They began to get a better view of the broad and extensive consequences of sin as they began to have children and more children. But it was that other consequence that they may not have realized and that we don't realize often. It takes us by surprise. It jolts us into reality. It humbles us because our sin does not affect just us. My sin doesn't affect me. It doesn't just affect the people around me. It doesn't just affect the entire world around me. All of that is tragically, fundamentally true, but my sin affects God himself. Well, that's what we miss, and, and, and part of why we don't realize just how terrible sin is. 
That's also why we don't realize just how amazing God's grace is. So let's study together. Let's see clearly who this God is, who we are, and and what's happening here in these verses. These verses are the end part of the generations of Adam, the the toldot of Adam in chapter 5, verse 1. This is what happens after Adam and to his, his offspring. And every part in that genealogy that Pastor Tom covered for us was, and he died, and he died, and he died. Uh, indicating very clearly that sin did bring death, as God had said. Bless you. But two men in that genealogy stood out from the others, Enoch and Noah. Enoch lived and walked with God as opposed to constant rebellion, and then he was not because God took him. In his grace toward this man, Enoch, God took him out of the world. But the other man was called rest or relief, Noah, because he was going to bring rest or relief from the painful toil of the ground. Now, little did they know that the way that that would happen is for a long time there would be no ground as the earth was flooded, and there would be no people to work the ground because the only people that were alive were living on a boat for a time. That's not quite the way that they may have thought that the rest or relief from painful toil would happen. But that's how God brought that rest about. But whereas it was God's grace to take Enoch out of the world, it was God's grace to leave Noah in the world and bring him through the worst catastrophe you could ever imagine. And so as we compare these two people that stand out in this genealogy, we need to understand that we need to be careful that we don't go into the Bible and pull out certain people and think, well, that's what God did with that man or with that woman. Um, That's the way he's going to deal with me. Sometimes it's God's grace to pull us out of the world and take us out in whatever way He decides to do that, through sickness or illness or uh, an accident or just through age. He takes us out of the world, and that's His grace. Sometimes it's His grace to leave us in the world and bring us through uh, what we would never want to go through. But in both cases, it's His grace. And so we learn to view life as God views life, not like we may be tempted to view it. But here's what happens to Adam. And his descendants. If you look at chapter six, verse nine, um, that will begin the descent, the, the generations, the told note of Noah. But here is how this ends for Adam's offspring. And let's look at this in four parts. Four different lessons that we can learn from verses one through eight in Genesis six together. The first one that we see in verses one and two is that as the population grew, sin grew. As the population grew, sin grew. He says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. See, God had given a very strong command and a very strong blessing for mankind to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And we've seen a little bit about them being fruitful in their endeavors and, and, and making cities and culture and, and different ways that they've been able to be fruitful and then to multiply. They're multiplying here. So the, there's not a problem here with, multi, with the multiplication of the population. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That was all part of God's plan. And the problem here may not even be the sons of God and the daughters of man coming together, depending on how you understand them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if it's just men and women coming to, men finding the women attractive, <laughs> that's sort of the way God made that also. That's not a problem either. The problem comes in as we look at the end of verse 2. They took as their wives any they chose. Any they chose. In other words, they followed the example of Lamech. Lamech from Cain's line. Remember how he took two wives? 
Remember how they had names that were all about how they benefited him, what, what they could do for him. That's how he saw them. Um, and so these men start to think, that's a really good idea. I like the look of women. <laughs> so I'll just take any I choose, as many as I choose, for whatever reason that I choose. Just as we saw with Lamech, they begin to trample on marriage, trample on women, even on other men. And they continue their rebellion against God's order of one man, one woman in marriage. Now, let's consider who the sons of God and the daughters of men are. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because there have been debates on this for centuries. And if debates like this are your thing, there's plenty out there for you. You can find more than, in fact, I would say more than what would be healthy. We need to be careful that we don't get just bogged down in in fun little debates and details and arguments because a lot of times they don't end up being uh, all that fruitful or all that edifying. So be careful. Um, Don't spend your time on what's not important. Don't even spend time on things that are important. Spend time on the things that are the most important. That's a good lesson for us um, as we consider the views of who the sons of God are here and and the daughters of man. The point of these verses doesn't change depending on which view of these you take. And so that's another reason we don't need to spend a lot of time on on what this means because um, you can go off and just miss the point of what's happening. But there are three popular views. Uh, I want to at least give them to you so that you know that sons of God, in the first view, sons of God are angels. That these are angels, and this view is possible because in the few other places where we see that term, sons of God, in a few places in Job and Psalms, it does refer to angels. Uh, Not good angels, not obedient angels, but fallen angels, also known as demons. Um, Sons of God has not been a name for mankind to this point in Genesis, so that's another um, reason for people using this um, understanding of sons of God. An argument against this, though, is that in Matthew 22, Jesus says indirectly, angels do not marry. Um, Angels are not marrying, they're not given in marriage, and so um, as they marry here, it doesn't seem that that would be a possible view, but it is a, a prevailing view out there. Another argument against this is that we know where this is heading, the judgment of mankind, and if this is angels sinning, why would mankind be falling under the judgment of God for angels' sins. But it is a a view, there are answers to those by those who hold that view. A second view is that sons of God just means rulers, leaders, royalty um, of some kind. Sons of God is literally sons of Elohim, and we know that Elohim means the, the plural majesty of God, this great one, but it can also mean great ones, just great people, like kings and rulers and leaders. Another variation of this view says that it's mere men, but the demons work behind them. They work to control them and, and to, to manipulate and, and even inhabit them um, to act in rebellion against God. And in Daniel 10, you have these verses in your notes. We do see angels behind princes and rulers of the world working to accomplish uh, rebellion, sin against God. In fact, Satan himself is, is identified in Ezekiel 28 as one of the rulers of the world. And so, uh, the problem here, again, is that no group of kings or rulers is ever called sons of God anywhere else. Um, but it could be that this is the first and only place. So, the, a, third reason, a third view is that sons of God equals Sethites, uh, those who come from Seth. Um, this view sets sons of God, the good line of Seth, against daughters of man, Cain's line, the bad line. 
And uh, that's uh, got a nice benefit that there's a nice flow from the previous chapters. Um, we're able to see a contrast of the two lines. It's also said that in those lines, you know, you, you see that Cain's line has daughters who are named and uh, Seth's does not have any daughters who are named. So his is the good line versus the bad line. And, and that's comfortable for many people to, to view it that way. Um, but women are not exactly viewed as evil versus good men in the scriptures. That, that never occurs. And then both lines will be destroyed in the flood. So it's not like there's one good line and then one bad line and the good line gets rewarded and the bad line. That's just not how God's grace works. Praise God for that. As for which of these is correct or some other solution, my personal opinion based on studying this is that the second one seems to make the most sense. These are just men, and they've either got demons manipulating them, controlling them, pushing them, or they're just doing it themselves. The point, though, of this whole thing is the sin that comes along with this activity. Uh, People are doing whatever they want in contradiction to what God said he wanted. What God said things should be like. That is the point. These sons of God determine for themselves what is attractive or what is good. The word here is good, the same word that that God used when he looked at creation after he created everything. He said it is good. God made everything good. He pronounced it good. He said it was not good for man to be alone. And after one man and one woman came together in marriage, at the end of that day, God said, it's all very good. But now mankind is saying, I think I know better. Because that's how, start, that's how Eve started. When she saw the fruit, she saw that it was good for her own purposes, her own uses. She thought, what I think is good is better than what God says is good. I'm going to do this. And then Adam did the same thing without even giving any reason. <laughs> he decided what was good was to just follow his wife into sin instead of what God had said. And so ever since then, mankind has challenged, rebelled against God's idea of what's good. And it continues here. As the number of men goes up, the number of men who determine what's good for themselves goes up. And so sin goes up. Why is that happening? It's happening because mankind was never given the ability to know what's good on his own. You and I don't have the right to determine what's good. God tells us what's good. You know, so many times today in our culture we hear... Let your inner voice lead you. Let your gut lead you. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Or more recently in our culture, the the voice of the culture is proclaiming, this is good. Everything that we say is good, you need to believe is good. You need to act on these things in the the area of human sexuality, in the area of of women's rights on their bodies, and, and different areas in our culture. We're determining what's right. Forget what God says. God says, this is good. And in this that's good, he tells us what's good, and this is our standard, this is our authority, not our inner voice, not our heart, not the culture around us. We need to trust him and obey him in love and adoration and worship and let him tell us what's good and follow that. But we see the propagation of humankind and sin in parallel, and that's something that will continue throughout history. Even today, the the closer you get to a city, with more people living together, more, pe- more people living more closely together, the more you will see higher levels of sin. There, there's more crime. There's more opportunities for sin, more flaunting and acceptance of sin. The more you have people living together, and that's what happens when we, dis- we, we start to decide by a sliding scale what's good, what's right. 
what's attractive. Now, a question that we may have at this time is, um, how many people were alive right now? We know what's about to happen. We know the flood is going to come. How many people are alive at this time? All of this population growth and sin growing along with it, how many are there? Well, we don't know. That's the simple answer. Uh, Many people have tried to to figure out that it could have been several thousand or hundred thousands of people. Some population models place it at 750 million people alive on the earth at this time. Um, Another model says it could have been closer to 4 billion people alive on the planet at this time. But again, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. No one decided to do a census and write it down and survive the flood. Um, But however many people there were, as the population grew, the sin was growing. So that's this first lesson, the first part. Number two, as we study verses three and four, we see that God removed His restraint. God removed His restraint. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Now, the words we have in English, abide in, are another source of debate for people who love to debate and love to disagree and argue. It may be better understood as shield or contend with. Abide in could be, but whatever, whatever one of those you choose, we need to understand that God is removing His Spirit, His restraining Holy Spirit from mankind. This is actually a form of judgment by God on mankind. Because the Holy Spirit, that God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit is present in the world holding men back from the sin that they could be living in, that they could be living out. God's actually restraining, holding back people from being as bad as they could be. And it's His grace that does that. And so it becomes an act of judgment where He pulls back that spirit. He says that spirit is coming out of the world, and that's what's happening here on a massive scale. He's removing His spirit so that mankind will not just continue in sin, but even expand and increase and grow in it, and wallow in it. It will happen again one day on a massive scale. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about when the man of lawlessness is here, also called the Antichrist, he will bring all manner of blasphemy and rebellion against God, but he won't be able to do it until he who restrains it is taken out of the way. It's It's a really terrible form of judgment from God. To 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 be given over to sin, to have his spirit removed so that he, he gives you up. He just lets you go into your sin. And it's terrible because it will bring greater judgment, greater punishment at the end, not to mention the pain and the, and the trouble and brokenness it will leave in this life. You have Romans 1 in your notes, verses 18 to 32. It talks about this also. Three different times God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up to their sin, and they progressively grow worse and worse in that sin. He's even done it with his own people. In Psalm 81, God describes, um, in verse 11, he says, my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. So they, they, they continued in their sin, and they, and they grew worse and worse in their sin. But they don't have to. People don't have to grow worse and worse. They could repent. They could see the goodness of God all around and within and everywhere. They could see it and, and they could turn to Him, fall to their knees and cry out for mercy and He would give it. But they don't. So God says His days shall be 120 years. So what does that mean? Well, some people think it means man, man won't live longer than 120 years anymore. But people live longer than that after this 
And then as recently as 1997, according to secular records, the oldest person to ever live was um, a lady who died at 122 years old. And so what God says here is either wrong or it doesn't mean (laughs) that man won't live past 120 years. It means that there will be 120 years of God giving time to repent. There are 120 years left until his judgment comes. You say, well, he's already given them judgment. Yes, that was a passive form of judgment, removing his spirit. The active judgment will come in 120 years. In the meantime, even in the middle of the judgment of removing his spirit, in the meantime, there's grace and there's patience and there's a waiting for people to turn. That's what 1 Peter 3.20 says. In the days of Noah, God was patient. He's patient. God was not in a hurry to judge mankind, to destroy mankind. That that wasn't something he was excited about. He acknowledges man is just flesh here in verse 3, and his his end will come. But it's not going to be as they deserve it immediately and, and just right now because you've messed up one time. No, there's years and years and decades of waiting and and patience and long suffering. Did they repent? Let's look at verse 4. No, they did not. In those days, the Nephilim were there and afterward. What days? The days that we're talking about, Moses says, the days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they had children. Now, those who say that the sons of God were angels say that, um, many times say that the Nephilim were the product of those inappropriate relationships. Um, they usually prefer the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament used, the Septuagint. Instead of Nephilim, the Greek used uh, the word for giants. And so they connect these angels with women, and they had giant offspring. But the word Nephilim does not mean giants. It means those who fall, as in those who fall upon people, those who fall upon them violently or criminally or, or with an with a intent to harm or to hurt. They would fall upon people and attack them. So the idea is that these are wicked men. They're wicked men, and they're strong. And the end of the verse says, mighty men, men of renown. The verse doesn't say these are the product of the marriages from before, just as they were alive at the time we're looking at. But what becomes special about them? What, what Moses says we need to know is that they become really well-known, they become famous, maybe better infamous, by their wickedness, their violence. They're the violent celebrities of the time, like, like Bonnie and Clyde, or like the, the mobster bosses of, of old in, here in America, like Al Capone and John Gotti, and, and these, the wickedness of these people made them celebrities, made them well-known. Sinful man exalting sinful men, it's, it's Romans one thirty two, knowing God's righteous decree that those who do these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who do. And we have the same thing today. Look at our celebrities today. Look who, look who the culture holds up as famous, as, as popular. Reality TV stars that become famous for acting ridiculously and immature, immorally. Movie stars that become known for promiscuity and marriages of convenience, spending money frivolously. And that's in their real life. <laughs> Never mind what they portray in movies and, and TV that's supposed to be showing us what the fun life, the cool life is like indiscriminately murdering people, portraying drunkenness and smoking and drugs and and adultery as if it's just normal, it's cool, that's how you live your life. You know, bad guys become good guys. Look at at the heroes that our culture is holding up and making up in in movies and, and shows. You know, you're supposed to root for the bad guys. I mean, they're being bad, but they're they're doing some good, so they've they gotta be a hero. 
It's popular, it's accepted, it's cheered on, but it's, and it's not just celebrities. I, you know, those, those people who, who wield scientific power in rebellious and powerful ways. You know, we're going to create a designer baby. We're going to figure out a way for a man to have a baby. <laughs> that can't happen. Killing God's work in the womb. All, all, the advancements in, of evil and, and pr- promo- promoting and advancing evil in, in pornography and homosexuality, licentiousness, divorce, a- anything that's happening in our culture that's held up as, wow, look at the important work that's happening. Influences and celebrities are, are held in such high regard in this culture. Now, it's one thing for the world to do that. Brother and sister, why would, why would we in the church do that? Don't, don't fall into that, brother, and, and don't fall for them, sister. Stay away from the sin that is just held in such high regard, the sin that's seen as so cool and, and so fun and so interesting. Jesus is our hero. He is our celebrity. He's our famous one. He's the powerful Lord and Savior, and He's real. And He can make us more like Him for His glory. But the people alive at Noah's time were sinful, and they only grew more sinful, and they held up models of sin for themselves. But even as they did, God was patient. He gave them over by removing His Spirit, but He was patient with them. But now here in the third part, number three, as we look at verses five through seven, we see that God deals directly with sin. God now deals directly with sin. Instead of seeing what he had made and seeing it all good, it says here, the Lord saw the wickedness. Family, I can't imagine a worse pronouncement of mankind's condition than this. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What God's doing here is He's showing us the extensiveness and the intensiveness of sin within us. Remember, mankind thinks He's doing good. This is good. I'm finding what's good and I'm doing. I'm doing as much and as often as I want. But He's not doing good. He's not even any good at figuring out what's good. He's terrible at it. And so God, in His grace, holds up this mirror so we can see, oh, this is not a pretty picture. That what we really look like, he, he's showing it to us in his grace, but it's not pleasant. He, the extensiveness of sin. He says the wickedness of man was great. He's talking about the great evil of, of sin in man on the earth. You know, what should have been great was his, his great love for God. What should have been great was his great love for the, the people around him and, and the creation that God had made because it proclaims God and who he is. What should have been great was love, but what's great here is his rebellion, his wickedness, his sin. And the land here means all of the earth. When, when land or this word for land or earth is modified, land of Canaan, land of Egypt, it means just a specific part of land, but it's not modified here. It means the earth. There's a universal, extensive aspect of this sinfulness, and that's why the judgment will be extensive and universal as well. That's extensiveness. The intensiveness inside is that every intention, your inclinations, your dispositions, your motivations for your thoughts, of, of the thoughts, your plans, your schemes, the designs of your mind, all of this in your heart, to the very core of your being, human being, me, you, was only evil all the day. The word is, is from, uh, for intention here is from the word for pottery. It means to form or to fashion. Man drums up evil, only evil, continually. 
from his heart, from the center of our, from the center of our being, the core of what makes us, we, we, are, we become sin factories. We take in all of God's grace. We take in all of his provisions, all of his protection, all of the good that he's given us, our very breath, the food, the water, all of the things that he's given us. We take it inside, and then we crank out in a factory constantly sin, wickedness, rebellion. The original says nothing but evil. And it's not just that it happens. It happens all the day, continually. No breaks, no pauses, nothing good. So are you grasping this picture? of what God is, is showing to us about what we look like. You say, wow, man, I am not that bad. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done all these things, and that's just it. You don't have to do those things for this to be true. The problem that God shows us here is not a list of bad things that you've done or that you haven't done that were good. Those are included. The problem is that sin has changed our identity instead of walking with God and loving God and loving the people around us and working as God said, now we're just working to constantly crank out wickedness and sin and rebellion. And it's all of us that are included here. So it's not just that some, some people did some bad things. Everybody is only doing bad because that's all that we produce as sin factories. The Bible says there are not five types of people in the world. There are not three kinds of people. There are not two types. There's only one kind of person. However many people are alive, they're just sinners. This means that there's no such thing as a person trying to be good enough to go to heaven. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. There's no such thing as a person in his own condition where God looks on that person and smiles and says, yeah, he's doing a pretty good job. (laughs) He's doing some good things that outweigh the bad things. No, it's only bad from the core of our being. All you do is evil continually in your condition on your own before God. That's all we do. It's not a friendly picture. Brothers and sisters, it's not a positive message. In fact, that's a very and and truly offensive message to mankind. Is it any wonder that people hearing this message would be upset by it? Have you heard the concept of microaggressions? Microaggressions are are simple ways of speaking and and someone will take offense to it. You you didn't mean anything. You you, you had no idea that it could could possibly offend somebody. Those were microaggressions are. This message uh, goes way beyond microaggression. (laughs) It flies in the face of everything the world tells itself. You need to feel good about yourself. You need to have self-esteem. You need to be built up. You need to be just built up from all of the good things about all of the things that people think of you and that you need to think about yourself. It's no wonder that people rail against this message. Say, how did people rail against this message? Even though this is only the first part of it, the bad news, the good news is still to come, but people reject it because they say it's, it's hateful. They say it's racist, it's full of white supremacy, it's misogynist, it's patriarchal, it's wrong about sin. It's harmful to tell kids that they're sinners. You'll damage their self-esteem. It's not good for their development. And history has had even worse things to say about it. This is the truth that we need to see and understand about ourselves. In His grace, God shows it to us. As the perfect doctor, He gives us the diagnosis and it's terminal it's permanent. There's nothing that we can do about it. It has affected all of us, and it's affected God. Look at he says, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. And that regretted can mean repent, like what we need to do to turn away from sin. But for God, he doesn't need to repent. He's not a man. He cannot change. He never changes. So here it doesn't mean repent. It means to be grieved to console or comfort really to himself is, is, is what he's doing. He's regretting that he made man on the earth. These are words that we call anthropopathisms. 
Um, it, it's using human words for human feelings for God so that we can understand because God, God is perfect. He's unchanging. But He is intimately involved with us. There is real grief in God because of our sin. It's an offense against Him. He'll never change. But because of how precious we are as His image bearers, as His, perfect, as his creation, we're far from perfect, um, it brings Him pain to see us in this condition of sin and wickedness. And it brings him pain to know that he will have to judge one day. It's a vivid way of describing the impact of our sin on God. He loves us enough to be grieved because of our sin. It does not bring him happiness to judge. He will judge. It it will bring him glory, but not happiness. Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God says, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. You know, this, this illustrates the patience of God with mankind. I mean, if all we do is sin and all we do is constantly grieve God and all we're doing is, is, is bringing him regret, he says, I'm sorry I even made man. But he lives with, he allows us to live and he cares for us. He still provides, he still protects, he still guides, he still does all of these wonderful things because of him, we still exist. That's his patience, that's his mercy, that's his grace. Do we understand this about ourselves and about God? See, this is why we need to hate sin. This is why we need to be killing sin within us. Not for our own sake. I mean, for that, that's part of the reason because of what it does within us and with other, I mean, other people. It ruins relationships. It does all that, but because of the grief that sin brings to God, it assaults God. One day he will judge for that. Here in Genesis 6, he says it's going to be 120 years, and I will bring judgment. How long do we have today? We don't know. Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows when the end will come, so the time to repent and believe is now. The time to turn away from your sins and rebellion against God's laws is now. What if we don't? It can't be all that bad, right? If everybody's in this same boat, if everybody's a sinner, it can't be all that bad. Here's what God says in Noah's time, verse 7. I will blot out. Blot out means to wipe out completely. Just clean off. Wipe it out, destroy it. Erase the letters off a page by washing them off. What is he going to blot out? Our sin? Will he just blot out all of our sins? We have verses that God blots out our sins, and we praise God for that because of Jesus. But that's not what he says here. The problem is that man keeps drumming it up from within. He keeps creating it. So if he just wiped out all sin, it would just come back. So that's not the plan. Blotting out sin won't work. It's the origin of sin that's got to be dealt with that keeps getting drummed up within mankind in this all-out assault against God's character. He's got to blot out man. Will he be annihilated? No, he'll be wiped off the face of the land. But with him will go all the animals, the creeping things, the birds of the heavens, none of the fish because he's using water. He's going to use water to do that. What gives God the right to do this, though? To, to judge like this all mankind. He says, I, I blot out man whom I have created. That's what, God, that's what gives God the right to do that. The, the, the Lord of life is the Lord of life. The giver of life is the Lord. In those decisions, he'll, he will be good. He will be righteous. Now, it's catastrophic, the, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin. But why? It's because of the assault that sin is against God. 
It's not just because it makes me not a good person. It's not just because it, it breaks relationships. It's because it's, it grieves God. At this point, there is no hope for humankind. Judgment will come within 120 years. There is no way of saving themselves. And today, the same is true. We have no way of saving ourselves, and we don't know when the judgment of God will come. It may come 120 years. It may come in 120 seconds. We don't know when it's going to come. The time is now to repent, to believe. So even if he doesn't come back right now, a full life is still a short life. Don't wait as you see sin progress faster and faster in our culture, all around us, in the world, all around us, in our own country, you're seeing God removing His restraining influence from people. God doesn't mean that Jesus is coming back right now. He could. He absolutely could. If you think it's bad now, though, wait until His his Spirit is fully removed from the earth. You you don't want to see that. Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, Matthew 24, it's just going to be the same at the end. People are just going to be doing whatever they want, living in their sin, wallowing in it, but it will get worse. There's no hope here, but there's hope in God. Look at verse 8, number 4 in your notes. God gives grace. God gives grace, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. To find something doesn't mean to win it, doesn't mean to earn it. Noah doesn't, doesn't start working really hard and try to please God with righteousness. He's found favor, undeserved grace to Noah. You can earn wages. You can deserve payment. The wages of all of our sin is death. But this gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Noah doesn't know Jesus, but he knows that there is a God who's, who can be and is gracious with him, and God gives him that grace not because of anything he's done. The only hope any human being has is in God's grace, and he gives it. This has always been and will always be true, so turn to God for grace. When you turn to the Lord in faith, you're believing in God. You're saying, I believe in this God who is gracious. He is is a wrathful God, and he will judge me because of my sin, but if I turn to him and confess that, and I repent of that, turn away from it, I have to turn away from it, because if I'm turning to God in faith, I'm turning away from everything else that's sinful. So I have to turn away from sin to turn to God, and when I turn to God, there's no sin there at all, because God is perfect. He's pure. He's everything. And so when I turn to him, I believe in him in faith. I turn away from sin, and I do that through Jesus Christ, his son, and I don't wait. That's when God's grace comes to us, and that's the message that we bring to others. That's the message that we have to share, even though it will be offensive to all, some will believe. And it's the message where to live in all your ways, in all your thoughts, in all your work, in all your leisure, in all that you're doing, live your belief, your faith in Jesus Christ because in Him, your identity changes from a sin factory to a child of God. Speak and live that way, our application. What do we take from here? What do we do? How do we, how do, we do these things? Think about what areas of your life still have sin in them that you've not addressed with. You know, God's okay with this kind of sin. It's not that bad. You know, God's going to forgive me. God's already forgiven me. No, those sins are still within us. They still grieve God. The world's sin problem is still our problem in the flesh. 
Christian. So non-Christian, if you have never believed in Christ Jesus, you've never turned away from sin to believe in God in faith, that's the first step. And if you've not done that, please come talk to one of the pastors at the information counter or up here or in the, in the lobby, wherever you would be comfortable doing that. We're, we're here for you to guide you to Christ. Once you have come to Christ, number one for our application, examine yourself for sin. Still examine yourself for sin. Your flesh still loves to sin. It still wants to be part of that wickedness, that darkness that's all around us and still in your flesh. But what is it doing to God? Examine, look for it. Number two, ask God to reveal sin. Ask God to show it to you. God, I'm grieving you. I'm breaking my relationships with others. I'm making myself worse, but I'm grieving you, God, above all. Show me where I'm doing that. Show me how so that I can, number three, confess and repent. Confess those things. Say the same things that God says about them in confession and then repent. Turn away from them. Don't hold on to them. They may be comfortable to your flesh, but they're not comfortable to God. Fourth, grow your love for Jesus. Your love for the world, your love for sin, your love for comfort, your love for all of that is misplaced. Grow your love for Jesus. Learn all that you can about Him because as you learn more about Him, you love Him more. There's so much to know and there's so much to love about Jesus. After you've done these first four, then number five, don't start with number five, but after you've done those four, then number five, take practical steps to fight sin continually. Practical steps, kill sin, flee from sin and, it's, and, and temptations to sin. Get away from any of Don't make provisions for your flesh. Don't make it okay for you to sin. Don't excuse yourself. Don't compromise. Don't rationalize. All of the things that we're just so good at and, and that, that happen so naturally to us, flee from that. I, whatever it takes, you know, I'm not going to go to a movie anymore or, or you know, I'm not going to go to that place anymore. I'm not going to hang out with that person anymore. I, whatever the practical steps are, if I'm with that person, I'm going to talk about Jesus and not about what I used to talk about with that person. So practical steps. Number six, take practical steps to grow in holiness. Again, the first four have to be true. We've got to be growing in our love for our Savior before we'll be made into His image and holiness but those practical steps that he's given us, the Word of God, hear it, listen to it read, listen to it taught or preached, read it if you can all by yourself, <laughs> meditate on it. The Word of God is what he's given us for that. Pray to him, come to church, come to koinonia groups, get involved, serve, give of yourself. Uh, the things that are most important to you, give those to God. Time and money and energy and, and all that we have to give to our Lord. And number seven, grow your love for others. Grow the love for other people. I mean, the, the people around us that are our brothers and sisters that we're supposed to be loving and growing together and our love for the people out there who have no concept of what's going on in here, who have no idea what's going on in our hearts. We're to be loving the people around us. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. Our flesh just wants to love me. Father, we praise you, God. We thank you that you make any of this possible. You make it real, more than possible, God. You promise that you begin, you have begun a good work in all people who have turned to you in faith and repentance. 
And God, you have promised that you will see that through to the end. You will bring it to completion. Father, thank you. Thank you for that hope. God, we don't want to grieve you with our sin. We don't want to come against you, Father. We want to be your children. God, sin hurts us. It hurts other people. God, it's ruined this creation that still proclaims your, your glory. But God's sin has broken any kind of fellowship and relationship with you. So, Father, we ask that you would show us where we love sin more than you. Help us, Father, to turn away from that, to forsake that, to love you, to believe in you and your Son, Jesus Christ. God, make that true in our hearts, in our minds, in ourselves, Lord. And Father, as we grow in that love, God, I pray that you would change us. Lord, so often we pray these things, we say these things, and we, we teach and preach and sing these things. God, it's because it's your will. You've told us that's what you want from us. That's what you want from each of your people. Father, we pray that you would work that out in us. God, give us the boldness, the faithfulness, the love to share this message. God, with ourselves, with our family members, with our friends, with our neighbors, with strangers. Father, help us to get this message out. Lord, we know that it will be offensive. People will not like to hear that they are sinful, but that they, that they deserve your wrath. But God, I pray that we would be strong and bold to share that message so that we can share the message that in Jesus Christ, there is mercy and grace that prevails over your judgment. Your mercy, your grace to us, Lord, overcomes judgment. Your Son has paid our penalty. In Him we have life. Father, we can't thank You enough. We can't praise You enough for that. But Lord, I pray that every minute and moment of our life would be lived closer to that reality. Lord, that it would be more true of us that we're praising you, that we're thanking you, that we're worshiping you in all that we do and say and think and feel. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he didn't give up. Thank you that even when he died, he rose again. We praise you and thank you in his name. Amen.